Well, you can open back up to the book of Colossians, which Janice read for us earlier. We're in Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you want to take a Bible from the seat back in front of you, you should find it on page 833. So that's Colossians 1, verse 24. <coughs> There's an old tale about a wealthy Persian named Ali Hafed who owned an estate in the Indus River Valley. And one day Hafed was paid a visit by a Buddhist priest. And in the course of their conversation, the topic turned to diamonds and how inestimably valuable diamonds are and all that could be done and all that could be had with their wealth. Well, Hafid was struck with longing that day and he went to bed that night a poor man. The next morning he resolved that he would find diamonds. And so he sold his estate, he collected his money, and he set off in search of treasure, diamonds. He traveled widely through Palestine, then through Europe, until finally he reached Spain. Wretched, ragged, penniless by this time, and there he ended his life in despair. Sometime later, the Buddhist priest returned to Hafid's old estate to visit the new owner, and on the mantelpiece, a bright gleam caught his eye. He went over to it, and it was a rough black pebble with sparkling light shining through it. And he said, Ah, Ali Hafid has found his diamonds and has returned. But the new owner corrected him, No, Hafid has not been heard of ever again. That, that rock is just an interesting pebble I found in a nearby screen, uh, stream on the land. And the priest corrected him, inside that black stone, he said, is a diamond of highest quality. And to make a long story short, further investigation turned up literally acres of diamonds of all sizes and, and qualities on Hafid's old estate, some of which went on to grace the crowns of monarchs. Had Ali Hafid stayed home and dug in his own backyard, he would have found what he was looking for beyond his wildest imagination. That same storyline has been told many times in many different forms, hasn't it? It hit the top 40 recently in uh, Taylor Swift's song, You Belong to Me, where she sings about the day when you wake up and find that what you're looking for has been here the whole time. And that's the message of the letter of Colossians which we turn our attention to these next four Sundays. In this letter, Paul, the apostle, is writing to a church which he's responsible for, but who he didn't know personally. Paul's disciple Epaphras had planted the church in Colossae, and Epaphras is now back with Paul, who's in prison, and Paul is writing to this church, having heard that there's some problems there. Namely, that some false teaching has been infiltrating the church. What exactly this teaching is remains unclear, but it seems to have been some form of Jewish Christianity, probably with some pagan elements mixed in. From what we can gather just from reading the letter of Colossians itself, this teaching claimed that there was so much more available to the Christian that we can connect with God through wonderful visions and, and mystical experiences involving angels. But to pursue these things, we need to get really serious about our faith. We uh, need to deny fleshly pleasures. We need to observe certain Old Testament feasts and, and festivals. And those teaching these things evidently promised great wisdom and understanding to those who would take their uh, teaching seriously. Incidentally, this is a common religious formula still today. A teacher or a church says, do you really want to be spiritual? Learn our doctrine. We've got the truth. Uh, deny yourself pleasure. Strive to be holy. Follow the traditions. That's what faithful people do. Seek deeper spiritual experiences. Well, Paul writes to vigorously oppose this teaching. He reminds the Colossians that they began the Christian life by simply placing their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and beginning a relationship with him. And Paul urges that to add anything to the foundation of Jesus Christ alone 
And to lose your focus on Jesus in the process is to do exactly what Ali Hafid did. It's to head off on a fruitless search for a treasure which it turns out you already had all along. Stick with Christ, Paul is saying. Do you want to grow in your spiritual life? Go deeper in Christ. Stretch out wider in Christ. Soar higher with Christ. Let Christ loom larger in your life. Because in Christ, Paul says, is contained far more treasure than you'll ever know what to do with in all of your life. And if those experiences and those doctrines and, and, and the, 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 um, the good things that you do, if they aren't centered on Jesus Christ, then you're wandering away from the treasure. We'll see this message over and over as we work through the book of Colossians this month. And this morning we're going to jump in um, in uh, chapter 1, verse 24, and we'll look at the section that ends in chapter 2, verse 5. In the first 23 verses of the letter, up to verse 24, Paul has done what he usually does in his letters. He's briefly introduced himself. He's given thanks for the Colossians and for their faith. And he's described for them what he regularly prays for them. And now in verse 24, we get into the main thrust of his letter, and he starts by introducing himself now in greater detail. Since the Colossians don't know Paul personally, though they've um, no doubt heard about him, Paul gives them the reasons that they should trust him and, and take what he has to say seriously. Paul isn't writing representing himself, he says. Rather, he's a man on a mission, a divine mission. According to verse 25, the one who has appointed him to this mission and commissioned him to this task is God himself. Last Sunday, Jason Gabry used the phrase party promoter to describe what we as Christians are invited into. And I think in today's passage, Paul here would describe his own calling from God as an apostle commissioned by God I think he would describe it as treasure hunting tour guide. N.T. Wright explains, In many adventure stories such as Robert Louis Stevenson's famous Treasure Island, the plot hinges on the discovery of an ancient chart or map. The people who have found it realize that if only they could understand and follow it, it would lead them to buried treasure that has been hidden for many years, perhaps centuries, and they would be rich beyond their wildest imaginations. Toward the end of chapter 1, Paul speaks of God's secret plan, a plan which has laid hidden like a map in a locked and dusty cupboard for ages and generations. Now, quite suddenly, it has come to light in the events concerning Jesus, the Messiah. Paul is in possession of the map and is inviting as many people as possible to come with him to find the treasure. That's Paul's calling. That's Paul's identity. God has entrusted him with the map to the most lavish treasure that the world has ever known. And God has appointed Paul to lead other treasure seekers to find the treasure. That treasure, of course, is found in Jesus Christ. The Colossians already know this, in theory at least. They heard the gospel message about Christ from Epaphras, uh, Paul's assistant, and they received it gladly. But now they're, they're starting to do what Ali Hafid did, to wander off in search of other treasures. And so Paul appeals to them as an expert treasure hunter, to, to stay on course with plan A and, and not to get extract, uh, distracted, not to get distracted by tall tales of other treasures. So as we dig into the passage now, we see that Paul makes three appeals to the Colossians. First, he appeals to his own sufferings and struggles for the sake of leading others to the true treasure. Second, he describes his passionate purpose to lead people all the way to the treasure. And third, he offers a tantalizing description of the treasure itself. So first, his sufferings and his struggles. I picture Paul like Indiana Jones, 
ragged and, and beat up from all the trials and, and troubles that come along with treasure hunting. Verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Paul actually rejoices in what he has suffered for Christ and for churches like the Colossians. Treasure hunting is rough, rugged, dangerous business. It was tough sledding for Christ who established the treasure and it's rough sledding for those who come after seeking the treasure. But what does Paul mean when he says that he fills up in his own flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, he of course does not mean that Christ's sufferings on the cross are not enough to save us. Christ suffered and died on the cross, taking on himself the, the punishment that, that we deserve so that we could be spared uh, that punishment. And that work on the cross is complete. It, it's finished. There's no more suffering that needs to be done by Paul or by anyone else to make us right with God, right? What Paul then is referring to here is is that when Jesus came into the world, he came to bring the kingdom of God. And Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection were a God invasion of enemy territory. With the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God began to break in, to press in on the kingdom of darkness. And that invasion continues to this day. Wherever the message, message about Jesus is proclaimed, wherever people worship and follow Jesus as king. And whenever two kingdoms collide, what happens? There's conflict, right? And the New Testament has a word for this conflict. It's flipsis in Greek. Flipsis. It's translated affliction or tribulation or trouble. It's the heat, the, the, the friction, the pressure that, that's generated every time the kingdom of God presses in on the kingdoms of this world and they resist. Jesus was the first to face this affliction when he inaugurated the new kingdom. But he isn't the last. Everyone who, who gives their allegiance to, to, to Jesus' kingdom experiences slipsis as well in one way or another. And so, so to go back to the treasure hunting analogy, if Paul, or I'm sorry, if Jesus suffered to gain the treasure, Paul will fill up that suffering in order to lead people into the treasure. That's just the nature of treasure hunting, and it comes with the territory, and it's worth it. And that's what Paul is saying here. Not only does Paul suffer, though, he says he also struggles. He, he strives, verse 29, to this end I labor, he says, struggling with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and, and for those in, in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Paul is not half-hearted about his calling. He, he gives it 110%. Why? Well, again, because it's worth it. Paul has the best job in the world. He gets to lead people out of want, out of need, into treasure beyond their wildest imaginations. And Paul says, Christ himself supplies the energy which enables Paul to struggle on. Paul is weak. He, he gets beaten up and he gets beaten down regularly. But Christ's energy is at work in him, spurring him on. Christ wants Paul to succeed, and Christ empowers Paul to do so. And now that struggle has, has taken on fresh urgency in the case of Colossians. As Paul hears the disturbing news that, that they're being lured away from Christ to pursue other treasures. If you saw the movie Schindler's List then you know of the bravery and the noble heroism of Oskar Schindler. He was a German businessman who risked his life and spent his wealth to um, save the lives of over 1,200 Polish Jews. And Brian Chappell, a preacher, reflects on something I didn't realize, and that is, well, he says, I was shaken to read a post-war account of Oskar Schindler. 
After the war, this noble heart abandoned his wife, became a womanizer and a drunkard, and fell into destitution and dependence on others. For some schnapps, he even pawned the commemorative gold ring that had been fashioned for him from the false teeth of those that he had rescued. Well, Paul is trying to make sure that that same sort of tragedy doesn't befall the Colossians. He fears lest they, they leave Christ, their, their treasure and the good path they were on and, and fall into mere religion to their own impoverishment and ruin. And so Paul renews his struggle for them. And that leads to Paul's second appeal as he describes his passionate purpose. What's Paul's purpose? Well, in a word, it's that he might lead as many as possible all the way to the treasure. I tell you this, he says, so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. That's chapter 2, verse 4. In other words, don't believe the tall tales of other treasures. They're all rubbish. Chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Look at what's right in front of your nose, Paul is saying to the Colossians. You've already got the greatest treasure of all, Christ. My purpose, Paul says, is to proclaim Christ to everyone, to, to admonish and to teach everyone so that I may present everyone perfect in Christ. To be perfect in Christ, that's where the treasure is at. Now, as I've said before, when you read this word perfect in the New Testament, don't think of absolute perfection. Think, rather, of an Olympic athlete. It's not that they never mess up. It's rather that they're at the top of their game. They've trained and they, they've practiced until they've mastered their event. Sure, they make mistakes. Everyone does. But the point is, they're accomplished experts. They're mature in their sport. And Paul struggles and strives that that would be true of us when, when it comes to our walking with Christ. That's how we find the treasure. You know, verse 28 means so much to me. Um, as a pastor, there's so many things that I can be focusing on. There are, are so many ways that I can use my limited time. And they're all good things. But Paul reminds me of what the best thing is. To proclaim Christ. Admonishing and teaching everyone to present everyone perfect in Christ. That's what I'm called to do. And elders and small group Bible study leaders and kids leaders, that's what we're called to do. Not just to administrate. Not just to lead. Not just to comfort and to care for those who are hurting, but in addition to all of that and of greater priority and, and focus than all of that, it's to struggle to help people to grow and to mature until they're at the top of their Jesus game. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul elaborates on what this looks like when a group of people grow to maturity in Christ together. My purpose, he says, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When a group of people train together, when, when we strive together to mature in our walks with Christ, this is what the wonderful result is. Three things. A, that we're encouraged in heart. The Greek word translated encouraged here is parakaleo. It's related to the word that the Gospel of John uses to describe the Holy Spirit. Paraclete, you may have heard of that word. Literally, it means called alongside. And it's such a rich word that it's hard to translate with just one English word. It can be translated as encouraged, exhorted, 
comforted, strengthened, counseled, advocated for. I like the way preacher Daryl Johnson sums up what it means. He says, convicted, convinced, comforted, counseled, and kicked in the pants. <laughs> That's what Paul wants for our hearts. That, that as we grow and we mature in Christ, that we're infused with, with a comforting strength, which enables us to joyfully and, and contentedly to be faithful to Christ no matter what the circumstances that we go through. Parakaleo. B, as we grow perfect in Christ, we're not only encouraged in heart, we're also united in love. And the Greek word here can also be translated knit together in love. As we grow and we mature in Christ, our hearts are, are not only infused with a comforting strength, but we as a community are knit together in love. A few weeks ago, we saw that love is what Christ is all about, right? Matthew 22, we looked at uh, Jesus giving his royal command that we love God and that we love our neighbor. When King Jesus is our treasure and when we experience his love, we come to love one another. Both giving that love to others and experiencing that love from those around us. I don't know if you've ever been part of a community like that. My wife Anne teases me that whenever I talk about my college days, I talk about them like they're the glory days of yesteryear. But I was part of a Christian fellowship that really did love one another like that. And it was a taste of what heaven must be like. We used to say that, that when you love yourself, you only have one person loving you. But when you forget about yourself and you love a group, say, of, of 12 people who are loving one another, then you have 12 people loving you. Not just one. And that's a treasure. Then see, Paul says... When we grow to maturity in Christ, we, we not only are encouraged in heart and we not only are knit together in love, but we grow rich with understanding and wisdom and knowledge. Nobody wants to be ignorant or, or stupid or, or naive. And those promulgating the false teaching among the Colossians may have been suggesting that to, to really be smart, to really be wise, to, to, to be enlightened, the Colossians needed to follow their teaching, lest they be stupid and naive with their own simple understanding that they got from Paul. But Paul says, don't be fooled. You've already got the source of all wisdom. You've got Christ. Grow to maturity in Christ and you will find all knowledge and understanding. You know, professor and, and uh, writer of spirituality, Dallas Willard, likes to say that Jesus is the smartest man who's ever lived. Not only did Jesus make the universe, binding together atoms and, and designing organisms and ecosystems, but Jesus knew how to save the world. He understands human nature better than any psychologist. And he knows what we long for and, and what we fear and, and what makes us tick. Jesus knows what's gone wrong within us and he knows how to fix it. Jesus knows how to make us whole and how to help us to live well. We all want to live well, right? We want to live life well. We, we want to know how life works and, and what gives life meaning. And we want to know what our purpose on this earth is. That's why that book, Purpose Driven Life, sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. Rick Warren was tapping into something. We want to know what our purpose is. And Jesus knows those things better than anyone else. Better than Rick Warren even. And the more we learn from Jesus, the more we become a community of wise people. That's Paul's passionate purpose, that we become encouraged in heart, 
knit together in love, and a wise community. All right, well, this leads finally to Paul's third appeal, not only to his sufferings and struggles, not only to his passionate purpose, but also finally to the treasure itself. He calls it a mystery. And he doesn't mean, whenever he uses this word in the New Testament, he doesn't mean a foggy and confusing, phantomy sort of thing. Rather, he means a secret which, which was hidden, but which now is revealed. Like an unknown treasure map which has just been discovered. Verse 26, chapter 1. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery? What is the treasure? It's Christ himself. And even better, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul makes the point that he's speaking to Gentiles here. Let's talk about that for a minute before we talk about this Christ in you part. Paul, as a good Jew, never stopped being amazed that God would reach out his hand to embrace the Gentiles. After all, the Jews were God's people. God had chosen them to be his own from all the nations of the earth. And while those other nations went on their way in, in ignorant wickedness, God worked with the Jews. He brought them close. He, he taught them about himself. He, he taught them how to live wise and good lives. The Jews were in and, and the Gentiles were out as far as what God was doing. Of course, the Jews were only in by grace. They were far from perfect in God's eyes. He reminded them of that fact again and again. And, and so they needed a savior to, to offer them forgiveness. And, and if the Jews were similar enough that, that they couldn't be saved apart from grace, what hope was there for the Gentiles? But wonder of wonders, God sent a savior king, a savior king so big and so powerful and so full of, of God's loving grace that he not only worked salvation for the Jews, but he worked salvation for the Gentiles too. And wonder of wonders, come to find out, this had been his plan all along. All along, God had had his eye secretly on the Gentiles. All along, his loving heart had gone out to them. All along, a secret rescue plan had been in place until finally, in the fullness of time, Jesus came and executed the plan. And along the way, God commandeered the Jew, Paul, and gave him the central role of sharing this good news about all of this to the Gentiles and inviting them into it. A treasure hunting tour guide. What a treasure. A mystery long hidden, now revealed. Imagine scraping by all your life, thinking you were, you were nothing but, but poor trash and, and that your lot in life would never change. And then one day someone knocks on your door and they hand you a treasure map and explain that a long lost relative wanted you to have this and it was to a buried treasure worth millions. But it gets even better. Not only is Christ for us Gentiles, but he's actually in us. Personally, intimately, transformingly. We're being embraced at the deepest level. This is the hope of glory, Paul says. And this phrase, hope of glory, it's a short phrase, pregnant with meaning. And just to very briefly unpack it, hope speaks of a certain future which we look forward to. Glory speaks of the riches of that future, the riches of the age to come when Christ returns and, and uh, remakes all things and we know him face to face. The hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. As Paul puts the same thought in Ephesians, Christ in us by the Spirit now is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the hope of glory in the age to come. 
if Christ is in us now and his kingdom is, is coming in our life now, then we can look forward to knowing him and, and to being in his kingdom when it comes in its fullness forever. The treasure just keeps getting better and better. MSNBC.com reported about a guy named Stan Caffey who was engaged to be married and in preparation he cleaned out his garage. According to, uh, or rather among the items that he sent to Goodwill were an assortment of clothes, bicycles, tools, computer parts, and a tattered copy of the Declaration of Independence which had been hanging in his garage for the last decade. Stan's trash turned out to be another man's treasure. That particular version of the Declaration of Independence was a rare copy made in 1823. And a man named Michael Sparks spotted it and purchased the document for $2.48. He later auctioned it for $477,650. Caffey, the previous owner, was later quoted as saying, I'm happy for that Sparks guy. If I still had it, it would still be hanging here in the garage, and I, I wouldn't know it was worth all that. Paul is a seasoned treasure hunter, and his passionate purpose and his plea is that that would never happen to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for noticing us, for caring about us, and going to such lengths to bring us in on your treasure. Thank you for finding a guy like Paul who was willing to struggle and suffer to get this good news out. I pray that we would never take it for granted, but rather that you would open and unfold our hearts by your Spirit. Teach our hearts what a treasure Jesus is. And may we, week by week, year by year, go deeper and deeper into him. May we mature. May we come to be at the top of our Jesus game. And may we experience the treasure of being encouraged in heart, knit together in love, to be wise and knowledgeable in the ways that really matter, and most of all, to experience Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. Amen. And now in a couple minutes, we will come and partake of this treasure personally and firsthand. We've sung about the treasure and we've heard about Thirty-four to forty. So, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew 22. If you don't, you can pull a Bible out of the seat back in front of you and open to page 699. I believe is where you'll find that Matthew 22:34 to 40. Today we continue the theme that uh, Steve Morrow started us on last week: the theme of love. And to get our minds back into the theme, I thought I'd start with some black-eyed peas. For those of you who don't know, the Black Eyed Peas are a hip-hop group. And some of their songs are really terrible, but they have some really great songs, too. And I love their song, particularly, Where is the Love? It really speaks to the world we live in today. Listen to their words. I feel the weight of the world on my shoulder. As I'm getting older, y'all, things get colder. Most of us only care about money-making. Selfishness got us following our wrong direction. Yo, whatever happened to the values of humanity? Whatever happened to the fairness and equality? Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity. Lack of understanding leading lives away from unity. That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling under. That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling down. There's no wonder why sometimes I'm feeling under. Got to keep my faith alive till love is found. Now ask yourself, where is the love? Where is the love? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people got me, got me questioning, where is the love? 
You resonate with those words like I do? Where is the love? Well, as followers of Christ, we of all people have an answer to give. And that's what today's passage tells us. Today's text is a very familiar one. In it, Jesus tells us what the greatest two commandments are. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so important and central is Jesus' teaching here that it echoes down through the rest of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we get the overriding message that love is the most important thing of all. Jesus, our Lord, said it. What we don't often recognize, though, is the context in which Jesus said it. A context which proves that it can be religious people, first of all, who are in danger of forgetting about love. So I want to start this morning by putting these commands which Jesus spoke back into their original context. The place was the temple in Jerusalem. The time was late in Jesus' ministry, just a day or two before he was handed over to be crucified. If you flip from our passage in Matthew 22, back a page, you'll see that Jesus has just cleansed the temple a few days before, and then he cursed a fig tree. And in those acts, he prophetically signified that God's judgment was coming upon the temple and the religious establishment which functioned in and around it. Then if you flip ahead a page or two, you see that Jesus is just about to pronounce woes on Jerusalem and her leaders and to predict the utter destruction of of the temple and of the city. In other words, things are really heating up at this point in the story. Our passage itself is the third of four exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They are trying to trap him in some sly way so as to have grounds to arrest him, but in each exchange, Jesus comes back to them, shows them up. And look how our passage begins. Literally, the text says in 22:34, the Pharisees gathered together. Gathered together. This is the exact language that we find back in a famous psalm, a psalm which the New Testament applies to Jesus and to the opposition that he faces from kings and rulers. Psalm 2, listen. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth Rise up, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, his Christ, his Messiah. I think this is a a further allusion on Mark's part to the conflict that's brewing between the religious rulers and Jesus, God's king. Jesus has foretold those leaders' judgment and destruction, and, and they are seeking to trap him, to destroy him. In other words, there's not a lot of love going on. All right, let's notice one more thing about the context of Jesus' teaching on love. And that is that today's passage, the third exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, is to be read closely together with the fourth exchange that follows it. Christians from the early church down through Calvin and the Reformers and on into our present day have recognized this. Why read them together? Well, two reasons. First, both begin with the Pharisees gathered together against Jesus. That phrase occurs again in verse 41, introducing the fourth exchange. And second, the third exchange flows right into the fourth exchange with no response by anyone. If you go back to the first question that they asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, it ends with the Pharisees' response, they're amazed at Jesus' answer. Then, after the second question about marriage at the resurrection, we have the crowd's response. They're astonished at Jesus' answer. But after the third exchange, there's no response by anyone until after the fourth exchange when we read that no one could say a word in reply and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Matthew presents the third exchange about the greatest command, love, together with the fourth exchange about who the Messiah is. All right, well, what do we make of these observations about context? What's the point? Well, let me pull it together with two simple statements. 
first, it's the King, the Messiah, who gives us the command to love God and to love our neighbor. I think the New Testament writer James is picking up on this. In James 2.8, he calls the command to love our neighbor the royal law. The royal law. It's the law of the king, the law of the Messiah. Second statement. Jesus' kingly rule and his command to love was coming into direct conflict with the religion of his day. Matthew and the way he tells this story is stretching out a tension for us between two poles. Jesus' rule of love on the one hand and loveless religion on the other hand. These two are coming into conflict. They're in tension. Now don't miss this. King Jesus is about to dramatically live out this love for God and this love for neighbor, neighbor by giving his life on the cross. While ironically, the religious leaders, though they certainly agree with Jesus in theory that, that loving God and loving neighbor are most important, yet nevertheless, they're about to kill God and their neighbor by having Jesus nailed to the cross. How can religion go so far astray? Matthew is warning us that when religious people lose their love, they come into direct conflict with the king himself who came to establish a kingdom of love. I don't know about you, but I find this very convicting. Where is the love? It's easy to lose the love, isn't it? Billy Graham describes loveless religion well. He, he said, we hurt people by being too busy, too busy to notice their needs. Too busy to drop that note of comfort or encouragement or assurance of love. Too busy to listen when someone needs to talk. Too busy to care. By contrast, Roy Hattersley, a, a columnist, describes very well the love Jesus came to bring. During the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, he observed the Salvation Army leading several other faith-based groups in responding to the needs. And I, I know some of you were there showing God's love as well. Well, he was moved, um, Hattersley was, but, um, by what he saw. But being an atheist himself, he laments in an article he was writing for the UK Guardian, and he laments, it ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. <laughs> he says, notable by their absence there in New Orleans were teams from rationalist societies and free thinkers clubs and atheist associations, the sort of people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. He also reflects in the article that enlightened people like him don't believe that behaviors like drug use or male prostitution are sins against any God. And yet he asks, who are those most willing to change the fetid bandages and, and replace the sodden sleeping bags? Christians. The only possible conclusion, he concludes, is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that, while they do not condition the attitudes of all believers, influence enough of them to make Christians morally superior to atheists like me. It's interesting that um, Hattersley can see clearly that love does not, in his words, condition the attitudes of all believers. Some believers are just religious while others actually love. So which are you? Which am I? What would your neighbor say? Your coworkers? Your family? What kind of Christian are you? Are you a religious believer? Or are you a believer marked by love? As far as Jesus is concerned, according to our passage, it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus came to bring God's kingdom on earth, a, a God revolution, a new world order. Out with the temple, said Jesus. Out with the, the complex religious rules and rule makers and in with love. So let's linger for a while on what the king is commanding us in these royal words in Matthew 22. 
these words about love. I want to make five observations about King Jesus' commands about love. First, ready? We can't manufacture the kind of love Jesus is calling us to in our own hearts. We've already alluded to that this morning. Rather, this kind of love is our response to God's far greater love for us. Notice Jesus' first command. Love the Lord your God. Not love God, but love your God. That little word, your, makes all the difference. He's our God. And why is he ours? Because he has already loved us. He found us in our lovelessness and, and he forgave us and he called us to be his own. How does John put it in the letter of 1 John? We love because God first loved us. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you want to have more love in your heart, Spend time getting to know again just how much God loves you. Just about every night I, um, when I put our kids to bed, I, I pray for them and I pray that they would always trust Jesus and I pray that they would love God and that they would love other people. But I also always add that they would know more and more how much God loves them. Because unless they have a deep sense of God's love for them, they aren't going to grow into into their love for God and for others. So N.T. Wright comments, that's when these commandments begin to come into their own. When they're seen not as orders to be obeyed in our own strength, but as invitations and promises to a new way of life. And it's God who leads us into this new way of life by first showering his love on us. Second observation. The love that, that Jesus calls us to is a love which comes to dominate and to permeate our whole being. Love the Lord your God, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. <clears throat> William Barclay describes this well. He says it's a total love, a love which dominates our emotions, a love which directs our thoughts, and a love which is the dynamic of our actions. All religion starts with the love, which is a total commitment of life to God. Third observation. This love is as much a public action as it is a private emotion. It was John Perkins who first helped me to see this. John Perkins is an African-American leader. I believe he was a mentor of Chris Rice who wrote that article earlier. He uh, has had a big influence in racial reconciliation and urban missions and inner city development. And in one of his books, Perkins made the point that in the Bible, love is not so much a warm emotion between two people who, who uh, care about each other as it is the way we treat people economically, socially, and politically. And his statement caught me up short when I read it, read it and I didn't want to believe it. I, I was a, a psychology major and I was passionate about people learning to love those close to them more tenderly and, and intimately. But the more I read the Bible, the more I came to see that Perkins is downright right. It's popular to complain that, that Hollywood has steered us wrong about what love is. And they sure have. Love is not first and foremost a feeling. It's not first and foremost an intimacy shared between two close people. Love is first and foremost a commitment and an action. Are feelings important? Sure they are. But they're not the root. They're rather the fruit. Popular culture has it wrong. Popular culture teaches us that love begins as feelings, as if feelings are the root. And then those feelings may inspire us to act lovingly, the fruit. But real love is just the opposite. The decision, the, the commitment to act in love is the root. And 
feelings eventually come along. They, they, they come along in their time, in their season, not all the time. But those are the, the, the fruit. The feelings are the fruit. So what is love? Well, theologian J.I. Packard describes it simply as the purpose of making the loved one great. The purpose of making the loved one great. Tim Kimmel, who writes about marriage and family, gives this definition, which is also really good. Love is the commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me. The commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me. The Apostle John, though, put it best. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And then in the same breath, he gives an example of what this looks like. If any of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Love is not only a private emotion, but just as much it's a public action. I'm not going to take time to, to do it now, but if you want further proof of this, just go back and look up the old two Testament commands or two Old Testament commands that Jesus is quoting here: uh, Deuteronomy 6:5, love God, and Leviticus 19:18, love your neighbor. If you read those commands in context, you'll see very clearly that loving God is more than an emotion when we sing inspiring worship songs. Rather, loving God involves obeying Him and serving Him only and not following after other gods. And loving our neighbor means, in Leviticus, not stealing, not lying, not perverting justice, not spreading slander, etc., all public as well as private actions. Love, in other words, is about labor conditions and social justice. It's about an end to discrimination. It's about responsible journalism. As well as it is about not gossiping or slandering about your friends, uh, forgiving, tender affection, and of course, gushy valentines on Valentine's Day. The king has come, King Jesus. And his new kingdom intends to transform every area of life. From romantic relationships and family relationships, to friendships and working relationships, to politics and policing, and economics and international trade. In Jesus' kingdom, it all gets shaped and molded by the ethic of love. Fourth observation. Love for God and love for our neighbor are closely linked. Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love God. Then he says the second is like it. And that little phrase is like it means just as important as it. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner observes the first is first, and the second is second. But the second is equally as important as the first. The Apostle John understood that love for God and love for neighbor are closely linked. And in 1 John 4, he writes, If we say we love God, yet we hate a brother or sister, <coughs> excuse me, we are liars. He has given us this command, Whoever loves God must also love his brother and sister. Evidently, that's how John understood what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 22. He who, or whoever loves God, must also love his brother or sister. How do we show our love for God? Well, a major way is by loving our neighbor. Jesus is brilliant in tying together love for God and love for neighbor. Because if we strive to love our neighbor without nurturing a deep love for God, we easily become, what, dry, cynical, strident activists. But if we try to love God without loving our neighbor, what do we become? Pie-in-the-sky religious hypocrites. 
And God knows the world already has far too many of both of those. What this world needs and what Jesus is, is unleashing into this world as agents of his kingdom are humble, grateful people deeply touched by God's love for them who are growing to fervently and worshipfully know God and, and walk exclusively in his ways and who express that growing love for God by giving away their love in, to bring goodness and to bring blessing to others. Fifth observation then. The twin commands of love are the glasses with which we read all of Scripture. Jesus says all of the law and the prophets depend, literally, that they hang on these two commands. Every other command gains its meaning and its authority from these two commands, to love. Take away the command to love, and all the other commands fall to the ground. They become meaningless. They become worthless. This means that to understand God's will as reflected in his word, as revealed in his law and his prophets, we are going to have to read all of that after putting on the lenses of love. We won't understand anything about the life that God calls us to live until we discern the motive of love that permeates all of it. Without the glasses of love, we read scripture and we become Pharisees believing the right things, faithful in our religion, but completely missing God's kingdom. And if we as Christians don't learn to love, we become part of the problem, not part of Jesus' solution. Could that be one of the reasons that evangelicals have developed a bad name in America today? Well, we live in a world which is in rebellion against love. Oh yeah, it sings about love. It talks about love. It's preoccupied with making love. But it hasn't the foggiest idea what love is. Yeah, there are, there are individuals inside and outside of the church who are, who are learning to love one another. But the culture as a whole, in fact, is in pitched rebellion against love. Way back in 1845, the social reformer Benjamin Disraeli observed that in great cities, men are brought together by a desire of gain. They're not in a state of cooperation, but of isolation as to the making of fortunes. And for all the rest, they are careless about neighbors. Christianity teaches us to love our neighbor as ourself. Modern society acknowledges no neighbor. Bill Clinton put it more succinctly recently, it's the economy, stupid. Money and what money can buy are what constantly steal the headlines. When was the last time you saw a headline about the crisis of lovelessness in our country? But that is the real crisis. And we Christians today living in the 21st century are being deeply influenced by our culture. Jesus came as king. And as he set about to establish God's kingdom of love, he came into conflict with the religion of his day. And so it still is today. So which is it going to be for us at CBC? Which will have our first allegiance? Religion or love? Let me end with a parable. And my wife came across this online. A lady is telling the story of the demise of potlucks at the church that she attends. As a younger adult, she writes, our potlucks were lots of people happily sharing and coming together to enjoy our time and fellowship. My husband would often bring in the handmade ice cream maker of our family and have squirmy kids turn the crank. There was always food left over to share with the shut-ins. The older ladies would always be competing in a good way to outdo other ladies making the best fried chicken or pot roast or chocolate cake. About 10 years ago, though, things started to change. It was not the economy. The economy was good then. It was an attitude shift. 
I noted that more and more people came with a rather stingy plate of cookies. As the older ladies aged and a new set of older ladies took their places, the attitude of many in this new older group was, I did all that cooking stuff when I was younger. I, I don't have a big family now, so why should 